Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother, Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we were going over the Come, Follow Me lesson for September 12th through 18th, 2022. This is covering Isaiah chapters 13 through 14, 24 through 30, and 35. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hello, Scriptures! Yay! And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 38 minutes, 51 seconds. Fantastic! What would that be daily? 5 minutes, 33 seconds. So easy to do. Everybody can do it. But what if we wanted to read all the chapters, 13 through 39. Right, Come Follow Me leaves out a few of the chapters this week. If you want to read them all, it will take you one hour, 31 minutes, four seconds, or exactly 13 minutes every day for a week. So doable, and these are such great chapters to spend some time in. Here we've got time codes if you want to go chapter section by chapter section, or buckle up and we'll talk about them all together. Let's jump right in to Isaiah chapter 13. In the first 10 verses, Isaiah prophesied of the destruction of Babylon and that these events can be seen as a type or similitude of the destruction of the wicked that will take place at the Savior's second coming. Let's pick it up in verse 11. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. This is a promise of judgment that will happen at various times, but certainly at the second coming. For the remaining verses, Isaiah continues to prophesy about the destruction of Babylon. Let's take a look at verse 21. Notice that it uses the word satyrs. In the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, it gives us this definition for satyr. In mythology, a sylvan deity, or demigod, represented as a monster, half man and half goat, having horns on his head, a hairy body, and the feet and tail of a goat. Now, in footnote 21b, it gives us this alternate translation, he-goats, or demons. If you're interested, this might be another good opportunity to check out BibleHub.com and put in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 21. Or simply put that reference into your favorite search engine, and Bible Hub is likely to come up toward the top. Here we can see multiple translations of that same verse. And notice in more modern translations, like the New International Version or the New English Translation, the NIV translates, and there the wild goats will leap about. And the NET, wild goats will skip among the ruins. So don't get too tripped up when you see legendary or mythological characters in the King James Version. Isaiah is trying to paint a picture of the great civilization of man left to the wilderness. Right. It's such a good way to think about the way we read poetic imagery like this. What is the picture that Isaiah is trying to paint with his words? So let's take a look in Isaiah chapter 14. Let's pick it up in verse 3. And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow, and from thy fear, and from the hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve. Look at the imagery Isaiah uses here to show 
that when the Lord comes again, he will be merciful to his people and give them rest. Right. In the next few verses, Isaiah prophesied the downfall of the Babylonian king and compared this to the downfall of Lucifer, or Satan. Let's pick it up in verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Do you see here Satan's great desire? This is why we have to be careful when we want our desires above that of God's. Here we see Satan wanting to ascend and exalt himself above the stars of God. Are there things in our life, attitudes, behaviors, sins, people, ideologies, that we exalt above God? I really like how the Lord describes this attitude in Doctrine and Covenants 29. In verse 36, the Lord here is speaking of the devil, and he says that he rebelled against me, saying, Give me thine honor, which is my power. And also a third part of the hosts of heaven turned he away from me because of their agency. Now, if I understand this right, here the Lord is comparing honor with power which I find so interesting because Satan wants this honor, but I don't know that's something that you can take. I think it's something that has to be given to you because of what you do and who you are. We give honor to God because of who he is, his greatness. Satan can't take that, so he can never really have that power, but he wants it without earning it. And there may be things in our lives that fall into that same category. Well, let's go back to chapter 14, picking it up in verse 15. Here we have some wonderful imagery. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Now, various other Bible translations would refer to this as the lowest depths of the pit. Verse 16. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, everyone in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword, that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet." Whoa, wow. I love that. Again, look at that imagery. The painting Isaiah is making with his words, Satan will lose his influence and power over mankind. He will be cast out forever. I absolutely love the description of people looking narrowly upon Satan and saying, were you the guy that caused so much trouble? I love the way that that's represented in that verse. Well, and it's great, too, because it reminds us that those things that cause us to fear and tremble, when we really understand who we are as children of God, and when we really embrace his gospel, those things, we'll look at them and say, why were we scared of those things? 
Why did those things bother us so much and cause us to tremble? That time can and will come. Isaiah wants us to choose a side. He is showing us the end game of God's people and of Satan's followers. Which will we choose? Let's go on in chapter 14, skipping to verse 28. In the year that King Ahaz died was this burden. Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because of the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. And the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety. And I will kill thy root with famine, and he shall slay thy remnant. Howl, O gate, cry, O city, thou whole Palestina art dissolved. For there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? That the Lord hath founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. The Institute Manual gives us this additional insight on those verses. These verses reveal the judgment of destruction which Isaiah lived to witness against Philistia. The Philistines were longtime enemies of Israel, and warfare between the two peoples had gone on for centuries. They controlled parts of the Holy Land's coastal regions, though their power waned considerably from the time of David on. In Roman times, the Holy Land was known as Judea until the Jewish revolt of A.D. 132-135, through after which the emperor Hadrian changed the name to Syria-Palestina, to show the Jews that they had no claim there any longer. The King James Version used the Latin form and called it Palestina, but what is meant is the Philistines, not Palestine as the terms are used today. That's a really helpful clarification. Now you may have noticed so far in chapters 13 and 14 that we have judgments being proclaimed by the Lord upon the nations. This will carry on for multiple chapters. Isaiah 13 through 23 include multiple nations and the judgments proclaimed upon them. Various places in Isaiah's day are given. In 13 and 14, we have Babylon and its king. In 15 to 16, there is a proclamation of destruction of Moab. In 17, a message of doom for Damascus, the capital city of Syria. In chapter 18, well... That's a bit of a mystery. We'll talk about that in a minute. In chapter 19, Egypt. Chapter 20, Ethiopia. 21, Edom and Arabia. 22, Jerusalem. And 23, Tyre. We'll take a look at each of those briefly. Let's take a look first, though, at chapter 18 and see what we can learn about Isaiah's message and who it's to. Starting in the first few verses. Woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters, saying, Go, ye swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, see ye, when he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. Interesting. Now, here's an example of verses of Scripture that seem to be tricky to translate. We should always be cautious, especially with Isaiah, that we avoid assuming an intended meaning. From the Institute Manual, we get this insight. 
President Joseph Fielding Smith commented that Isaiah 18 verse 1 is a mistranslation. In the Catholic Bible, it reads, Ah, land of the whirring of wings, beyond the rivers of Cush. And in Smith and Goodspeed's translation, it reads, Ah, land of the buzzing wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. The chapter shows clearly that no woe was intended, but rather a greeting, as indicated in these other translations. A correct translation would be, Hail to the land in the shape of wings. Now, do you know of any land in the shape of wings? Think about your map. About 25 years ago, one of the current magazines printed on the cover the American continents in the shape of wings, with the body of the bird between. I have always regretted that I did not preserve this magazine. Does not this hemisphere take the shape of wings? the spread out of wings of a bird? President Smith went on to say that the vessels are vessels of speed, that the nation scattered and peeled refers to the land of Israel, which was denuded of its forests, that the ensign refers to the restoration of the gospel that is published as a standard before the nations, that the missionaries are going to gather Israel who were scattered and that only the Latter-day Saints can fully understand this chapter because it deals with the great work of gathering in which they are engaged. The seminary manual summarizes the interpretation of these verses like this. The land can refer to the Americas where the restoration of the church began. Ambassadors and messengers can refer to apostles and missionaries who travel all over the world to spread the gospel. An ensign is a flag or banner around which armies gather for battle, and a trumpet can be used to call people together. So both an ensign and a trumpet can symbolize the latter-day call to gather to the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Nice. Yeah, an interesting solution to the mystery of what Isaiah is referring to in chapter 18, and a nice positive moment amongst these chapters that call forth such great judgments on the other nations. Now, in verses 4 through 6, the Lord uses the imagery of a vineyard to describe the destruction of the wicked and the gathering of the righteous in the latter days. Let's take a look at verse 7. In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts of a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. Here we get another insight from the Institute Manual. The saints are so determined to offer to the Lord a worthy gift of gathered Israel that, as the prophet Joseph Smith said, they have labored without pay to instruct the United States and now the world that the gathering had commenced in the western boundaries of Missouri to build a holy city where, as may be seen in the 18th chapter of Isaiah, the present should be brought unto the Lord of hosts. Mount Zion is identified in modern revelation as the new Jerusalem. Thus, once the church is restored and Ephraim begins the work of gathering Israel from their scattered and peeled condition, they can present a restored house of Jacob to the Lord as a gift that will delight him. The Jerusalem Bible renders the phrase in Isaiah 18, a people terrible from their beginning, as the nation always feared, 
and it renders the phrase whose land the rivers have spoiled as the country crisscrossed with rivers. These passages seem to refer to America, where the restoration was to take place. Yeah, that's great imagery. Let's move on to Isaiah chapter 19. Here Isaiah prophesied that because of Egypt's idol worship and evil practices, the Lord would smite Egypt. However, Isaiah also prophesied that the Egyptians would eventually recognize their need for the Lord and turn to him. Let's take a look at verse 5. And the waters shall fail from the sea, and the rivers shall be wasted and dried up, and they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up. The reeds and flags shall wither, the paper reeds by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown by the brooks shall wither, be driven away, and be no more. The fishers also shall mourn, and all they that cast angle into the brooks shall lament, and they that spread nets upon the waters shall languish. Moreover, they that work in fine flax, and they that weave networks shall be confounded." Now, check footnote 9a, they that weave fine linen shall be confounded. The Institute Manual gives us this insight on those verses. These three things, fishing, fine flax, and weaving, represent the major industries of Egypt for which she had gained a fine reputation. Fishing was universally important in this river nation. The fine flax represents the fine twined linen that was world-renowned. It was the white material used in the sacred coverings of the tabernacle of Moses. The network weaving is the process of making the cotton garment common in Egypt. To have all three fail would be a national calamity. Now, as a silly side note, for a living, I'm a network engineer. One might say I weave networks. At my desk, I have the last part of Isaiah chapter 19 verse 9 posted, and they that weave networks shall be confounded. <laughs> to add to the humor, I've added a clip of 3 Nephi 23 verse 1 saying, Great are the words of Isaiah. Now, why is this funny? Well, modern internet networking is very complex, and certainly many a network engineer has been confounded repeatedly. I know I have. Now, I realize Isaiah wasn't referring to modern computer networks in the use of this word, but this verse still causes me to chuckle a little. <laughs> I love it. What a great way to apply the scriptures to your lives. <laughs> but it's not all doom and gloom for Egypt. Take a look at verse 22. This is speaking of the second coming. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, and he shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Sometimes it's easy to think of these biblical nations like Egypt and Babylon as just inherently bad or wicked, but they're children of God just like we are. The Lord loves them and wants to heal them too. To me, that's a really special promise for Egypt. Yeah, that's wonderful. 
Well, in the coming chapters, chapters 20 and 21, Isaiah prophesied that other wicked nations would be destroyed, as we reviewed before. But in Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah has a message for Jerusalem. Remember that in the days of Hezekiah, when the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, Isaiah prophesied that Jerusalem would be spared. That was covered when we talked about 2 Kings 19. But in Isaiah 22, 1 through 7, we read that Isaiah prophesied that Jerusalem would not be spared when the Babylonian army attacked more than a century later. Verses 8 through 11 tell how those people would depend on their supply of weapons, the fortifications that strengthened the city wall, and Hezekiah's tunnel, which diverted water into the city from the spring outside the city wall, instead of the Lord, as the people had done in Hezekiah's day. Now, as we've already studied, that prophecy was fulfilled. And think what a tragedy that was in the prophets of that day when the Babylonians were coming down. Here we have the people depending on the fortifications and supplies and strategies that they thought had won the day without recognizing that it was the power of God. And let's remember a timeline perspective here. These prophecies that Isaiah is talking about regarding Babylon wouldn't happen for another century. Right. Yeah, pretty remarkable. And it's a great reminder, too, about how important it is to remember the words of the prophets. Mm -hmm. Now, going on in verses 15 through 25, Isaiah told a story about Shebna, the keeper of the treasury of Jerusalem. Shebna was prideful about Jerusalem's wealth. Isaiah prophesied that Shebna would be carried away into captivity. Isaiah prophesied that a man named Eliakim, which means God shall cause to arise, as you can see in the footnote A for verse 20, that Eliakim would replace Shebna. Eliakim was a person who loved and obeyed the Lord. As we've seen, the name Eliakim has symbolic meaning because it points to Jesus Christ and his atonement. Hmm. God shall cause to arise or to be resurrected. Right. Let's take a look at verse 21. This is Isaiah talking about Eliakim. And I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. You know, it's interesting that he's referring directly to Eliakim here, but can you feel how messianic these verses are? Right. Verse 23 in particular, the phrase, the key of the house of David in verse 22 symbolizes the right to rule, which can be obtained only through the holy priesthood of God. Jesus Christ holds all the keys of the priesthood and has power to shut and to open, as it mentions in verse 22, that is to bind or loose, and no one can override that power. Let's take a look at that phrase in verse 23, as a nail in a sure place. The Institute Manual gives us this insight. Isaiah made a symbol of Shebna's replacement Eliakim. 
His name means God shall cause to arise, anticipating the Savior who holds the key of the house of David, but was fastened as a nail in a sure place until the burden of the atonement was complete. Upon him rests all the glory of his father's house. Isaiah recommended depending on him for everlasting security. The nail in a sure place is messianic and symbolizes the terrible reality of the cross, though only a part of the total suffering of the Lord that caused him to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. Just as the nail of the cross that was driven in the sure place secured the body of the one being crucified, so the Savior himself is, to all who will, a nail in a sure place. For he has given them power so that none need be lost. As Christ brings the redeemed to the Father, the glory becomes his own, and the redeemed and their offspring will become part of the family of heaven under the throne of Christ. Wow, talk about powerful imagery. Mm-hmm. Now, as we looked at before, these coming chapters continue to call out judgments upon the nations. In chapter 23, the coastal city of Tyre, located in modern-day Lebanon, would be destroyed. In chapter 24, Isaiah records a prophecy of the destruction of the wicked at the second coming. And in chapter 25, it contains a poetic celebration of the blessings the Lord will give to the righteous. I really like this pattern of the destruction of the wicked and then the blessings of the righteous. They come right hand in hand, as we've seen. Let's take a look in Isaiah 25, verse 6. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Did you notice how inclusive these verses are? Sometimes we talk specifically about God's covenant people. And yet, how often was the word all used? All people, all nations, all faces. The Lord wants to give his blessings to as many as will accept them. Now, we may not understand all of the words, like in verse 6, a feast of fat things. All right, well, we get that. I like a feast of fat things. Feast of wines on the lees. Don't worry. If you come across phrases that you're uncertain what they are, if you want to look them up, you certainly can, but you get the idea. It's blessings of the best and most wonderful things in life will be a part of this feast. Now, Elder Robert D. Hales in the 2011 October General Conference offered this insight. He said, in the scriptures, the word wait means to hope, to anticipate, and to trust. To hope and trust in the Lord requires faith, patience, humility, meekness, 
long-suffering, keeping the commandments, and enduring to the end. Nice. Going on to chapters 26 and 27, here Isaiah testified that we can trust in the Lord forever and promised perfect peace to those who do. Isaiah also used the imagery of a vineyard to show how the Lord cares for his people. In chapter 28, Isaiah condemned Ephraim in the first few verses or the inhabitants of the northern kingdom of Israel for their wickedness. He reminded them that the Lord teaches precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. The people did not think they needed the word of the Lord because they believed other things would save them from the problems they would experience. Taking a look in verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Now we've heard of Christ referred to as a stone before. Think about in what ways a stone is a good representation of Christ. In particular, I'm impressed with the use of the term cornerstone. Look at this image. Think about why a cornerstone is so precious. All other stones of the foundation upon which someone will build depends on it. It has to be perfect because all other stones will extend out from the cornerstone. And if it's not perfect, the foundation will be weak. So, what are some ways we can daily build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Think and consider how you have been blessed as you've tried to build your life on the foundation of Christ. There's so many good things in life, and sometimes we can maybe inadvertently build our foundation on those. Things like family, or good employment, or social activism, or even church callings. But nothing is the foundation on which we should build except the stone, which is Jesus Christ. He is the only source, the only foundation upon which we should build. In the remaining verses of chapter 28, the Lord told the inhabitants of the northern kingdom of Israel that they would be swept away because they believed they could build on something other than the Savior. That's a great caution to all of us. Indeed. So that brings us to Isaiah chapter 29. In the first few verses, Isaiah prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem, which would occur because of the people's wickedness. He also referred to the Nephite nation, which would also be destroyed because of wickedness. Take a look at this phrase in verse 4. Thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit, out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. This refers to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, which was translated from plates hidden in the ground by Moroni. The voice of the Nephite people speaks to us today from that book. Remember, too, that Nephi quoted and provided commentary for this chapter of Isaiah in 2 Nephi 27. Why might he have included this? So important. Isaiah also spoke of the conditions of the latter days. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. 
For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered. With the loss of the prophets and the straying of the Lord's people from the truth, the world would fall into a state of spiritual darkness. Note that the people are drunken and stagger. It's like they're in a deep sleep. This falling away from truth is called apostasy, and this particular period is known as the Great Apostasy. During a period of Great Apostasy, people were without divine direction from living prophets and apostles, and divine priesthood authority was not available to perform ordinances. Now, we discussed these events coming up in verse 11 last year when we studied Joseph Smith's history, verses 59 through 65. Isaiah 29, verse 11 And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Martin Harris delivered portions of the writings of the plates to Professor Charles Anton, and on that day this prophecy was fulfilled. But let's get back to how the Lord described the great apostasy in verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Now does that sound familiar with last year's study too? Remember in the recording of the first vision in Joseph Smith's history, verse 19, Jesus uses these same words to describe the Christian sects of the day. And it's an important reminder to us, too. Do we draw near to Christ with our mouth, but are our hearts removed far from him? As we take a look in verse 14, look for what the Lord would do to overcome these obstacles of the apostasy. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. The Seminary Manual offers this quote from Elder Russell M. Nelson. This is from the 2007 October General Conference. He says, quote, Isaiah foresaw that God would do a marvelous work and a wonder in the latter days. That marvelous work would include the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the gospel, close quote. In verses 15 through 17, Isaiah prophesied that the Book of Mormon would come forth at a time when people would seek to hide their actions from God and would not acknowledge God's hand in their lives. Let's take a look at verse 18. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. When we look at descriptions like in these verses, it's good to self-reflect. Have these things been true of you in a spiritual sense? Have you begun to hear things spiritually that you haven't heard before because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or have you seen things that you hadn't been able to see before, maybe an eternal perspective because of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's take a look for what Isaiah prophesied the Book of Mormon would do for Jacob's posterity. 
Let's pick it up in verse 22. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob. Now here we're referring to the Lord's covenant people. Going back to the verse. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands, in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name, and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. So which one of these promises would inspire you to read the Book of Mormon? Look back in those verses. Is there something in those promises that would bless your life? As a result, should we do more to bring those restoration scriptures into our lives? Let's go on to Isaiah chapter 30. Chapters 30 and 31 contain Isaiah's message of warning to the people of Judah who were considering making an alliance with Egypt to protect themselves from the Assyrian army. Through his prophet Isaiah, the Lord likened the people to rebellious children who ignored the Lord's counsel and preferred to rely on the strength of Pharaoh. The Lord warned that Egypt would not protect them. The Lord commanded Isaiah to record the Lord's words regarding the people's rebellion. Here again, this notion of building on something or trusting in something other than Christ. It won't support. Let's take a look at verse 8. Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, See not, and to the prophets, Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get you out of the way, turn aside out of the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Yikes! How do you like that expression in verse 10? Speak unto us smooth things. Right. So don't prophesy to us. Don't see things for us. Don't tell us the truth. Make us feel comfortable. Yeah, well, those are hard things. The Lord's telling us hard things. We want easy things. But notice what that means. So for the Lord and for his servants, get out of our way. Get out of our path. Cause this to cease from before us. Wow. Wow. So look what this rebellion leads to. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, because ye despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and stay thereon, therefore this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall, whose breaking cometh suddenly at an instant. And he shall break it as the breaking of the potter's vessel that is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it assured to take fire from the hearth, or to take water withal out of the pit. Now this is great imagery again. Notice the breach. This is a crack in the wall. And the swelling of it, the crack, who can know how quickly it will break how quickly it will cause problems, and how quickly it will cause the wall to break or to burst suddenly in an instant. Our sin, our rejection, our rebellion against the Lord is a crack 
in our foundation, and it will ultimately fall. He describes it like the breaking of a potter's vessel. And look at this imagery in 14. The potter's vessel will break so completely that nothing of it will be useful. A broken pot can often be useful in the ancient world. Notice at the end of the verse, it mentions how you can take a part of the pot, a broken pot, and remove fire from the hearth, or even scoop water with it. But these shards won't even do that. Now, in the remaining verses of Isaiah 30 through 31, although the Lord invited the people to repent, the people refused to do so. Isaiah rebuked them for not relying on the Lord for divine protection and assistance. And then in chapter 31, it also contains a comforting prophecy that in the last days, the Lord will defend the righteous inhabitants of Zion. Now, chapters 32, 33, and 34 Even though the people of Judah rejected his words, Isaiah continued to fulfill his role as a prophet. As recorded in these chapters, Isaiah prophesied of the restoration of the gospel in the latter days and of the millennial reign of the Savior when his people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation, like it says in verse 18 for chapter 32. Isaiah also described the Savior's second coming when the wicked would be burned in the fire of the day of the Lord's vengeance. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 35. This chapter contains Isaiah's prophecies of the Latter-day Gathering of Israel. Let's take a look at the first couple of verses and note the imagery in these first two verses. Verse 1, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. The Institute Manual gives us this insight. Several general authorities have seen the settlement of the mountain valleys of the Rockies by the Latter-day Saints as a fulfillment of these verses in Isaiah. When the saints arrived in the Salt Lake Valley in July 1847, it could be described as a wilderness and a solitary place. The saints went to work immediately, and soon the desert valleys of Utah began to blossom as the rose. But this prophecy may also be fulfilled by the settlement of modern Jews in the Holy Land, where similar things are taking place. Nice. Let's keep going in verse 3. Look for what the Lord commanded his followers to say. Strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart. The heart listed here, spelled H-A-R-T, refers to a stag. And the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Now, I know we've brought this up a lot, but it's still a great resource. Once again, these verses 5 and 6 were used in Handel's Messiah. It's a recitative in movement 19 called, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Nice. If you want to listen to it, we'll include a link in the description. 
And finally, the Come Follow Me reading ends with chapter 35, but we're going to pick it up with chapter 40 in our next lesson. Regarding chapters 36 through 39, we've actually talked about these a few lessons ago when we covered 2 Kings chapters 17 through 25. This is Isaiah's account of King Hezekiah being threatened by Assyria. He calls upon the Lord for help, and through his servant Isaiah, he is promised deliverance for Jerusalem. Unfortunately, as mentioned in chapter 39, he also invites the rulers of Babylon to see his kingdom, and Isaiah prophesies the coming Babylonian conquest as a result. I hope you've seen some inspiring verses here. Good warnings, good calls of judgment, but also great expressions of faith, blessings, and strength. As we see testified in Isaiah's words that we can depend on our Savior Jesus Christ, that he is the sure foundation. He is the one who will strengthen weak hands and lift up feeble knees. And for those who weave networks, prepared to be confounded. For great are the words of Isaiah. <laughs> now, for those of you who may be reading Isaiah for the first time or the 10th time or the 200th time, you might be discouraged that you may not fully understand all of his words. Don't worry, you're in good company. But even if you don't understand everything that Isaiah says, could you get a sense today of what he means to say, of the intent of his words? Have you found gems or insights that you hadn't seen before? We'll understand Isaiah the more we read him and study. Exactly. It takes practice. This is true of many of the scriptures. You may not fully understand what you've read, but the more that you study it and the more that you ponder it and the more especially that you call upon the Holy Ghost to help you, you will continue to find insights and gems that you can share, and we encourage you to do so. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>